The Wise Women's Council is back. We are back this year. We are now accepting enrollments for our class of 2022. One person said, it made me feel seen and less alone. What I didn't expect was just how expansive Wise Women's Council was for me. The people I met, what I learned both about myself and the world, it truly expanded what I thought was possible about working parenthood. Another person said, The Wise Women's Council brings these incredible women together and you form relationships over nine months that approximate the closeness of many years long friendships. You learn things about yourself that you didn't know before. You unlock ways of understanding the world around you outside of where you were before. And here's one more. Another woman said, There is no way to describe what it feels like to be validated. So much of being a woman and more so a mom makes one feel invisible. In this space, I felt seen and heard by really smart, funny, and fearless parents. If you are looking to join a supportive, expansive, brilliant group of women founders, leaders, business owners, and creatives, then check out the Wise Women's Council. We only open once a year for applications to join. Applications this year close March 1st, 2022. You can go to startupparent.com slash WWC, or if you go to our website, look for the Wise Women's Council button right at the top. I hope you join this year. I can't wait to see your application. I don't know if this is a compliment or what, but this is the first time out of a million podcasts where somebody has brought me to the brink of tears. So uh, thank you for oh, that. That was not I'm a moment sorry. I expected. You're welcome. <laughs> that was James Breakwell. He is an author of multiple books, and he is the creator of the popular Twitter account, Exploding Unicorn, which has more than 1 million followers. James is well known for his viral tweets depicting hilarious snippets of conversations with his four daughters. And today I ask him, are these stories all true? How does he write about his kids on the internet and in his books? And what parts does he keep private and personal? And where does he draw the line? In this interview with our very first startup dad, he gets real about how he navigates building a public persona based on his family life, including how much to share and what to withhold. Today in our conversation, we're going to talk about what it's like to chase your dreams as a writer and why he advises most people not to quit their day job while still chasing their dreams. He shares how much money he makes from writing his books and his secret gym and editing process to write books while lifting heavy weights. We go back and we talk about his career path, the twists and turns of making it in journalism, which is very challenging given that parts of that industry really are dying and shrinking. And then we turn to talk about the hardest conversations and things you can experience as a parent. When I ask him about the tough stuff, we do get to tears. Some of his books include Only Dead on the Inside, A Parent's Guide to Surviving the Zombie Apocalypse, and Bare Minimum Parenting, The Ultimate Guide to Not Quite Ruining Your Child. His latest book is How to Be a Man, Whatever That Means, Lessons in Modern Masculinity from a Questionable Source. Join us for this conversation with writer, startup dad, prolific tweeter, and comedian James Breakwell, and please welcome our first startup dad to the show. Welcome back to the Startup Parent Podcast. This is the show where we get to talk to working parents, business leaders, entrepreneurs, and creatives about what it looks like to raise kids and also build companies. I'm your host, Sarah K. Peck. Baby sleep can be so hard. This episode is brought to you by Nanit, the company that created a smart baby monitor. Not just to see your kid on camera, but also to know that they are sleeping well and they are safe. 
The Nanit Plus Smart Baby Monitor tracks your baby's breathing, and they have special sleepwear so that you can see that they are safe and know they are breathing throughout the night. If you've ever been stressed out overnight or worried about your baby sleeping, this can put your mind at ease. This is a baby monitor that can help you adjust to your new sleep life once you bring that kid home with you. They also provide sleep coaching, training, and a baby monitor all in one. Visit nanit.com today to learn more about this amazing baby monitor, why people are raving about it, and how it can help you and your little one have a better night's rest. Also, listeners can use the code STARTUP at nanit.com to save 10%. James Breakwell, thank you so much for joining me on the Startup Parent Podcast today. Thank Thanks you for, for being here. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for having me. <laughs> <laughs> so you are a moderately famous internet dad. You're the author of the Twitter um, Exploding Unicorn. You're the father of girls, a lot of them, uh, a couple of them, and a comedy writer and an author. So obviously the first question I have to ask you is, what time did you wake up this morning? And what was the first thing that you did? I woke up at 4.30 and I rolled into the bathroom to get dressed. And I have to be very careful about that so I don't wake up my wife. Got to get the door all the way closed before I turn on the light. And then I headed to the gym. Ooh. Is the gym like inside of your house on, a, on one floor? Or is it far away somewhere else that you're able to go to? It is like two miles away. It's like an eight or nine minute drive. And right now, it was for a while. It was spring finally, and it was warm, and it was pleasant walking outside. And then somehow in the middle of April, we got two or three inches of snow the other day. So now it is very cold and very dark when I leave the house. It is, it is unpleasant. And then your gym routine. So are you still doing a lot of running? Because I know you did running when you were younger. Or what's your gym routine look like? So I gave definitely the wrong impression with this book. This book is just all about how I ran, which is which is really all I ever did up until the start of this. I finished writing the book. And as soon as I finished writing the book, I uh, changed everything about my life. And now it's just a weightlifting routine with with almost no running involved at all. I was going to say, like, I, I would have expected you to run to the gym, but... Oh, okay, would, so it's a weightlifting routine. <laughs> that, would, that would be so much extra work. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then what time do you come home? Do you sneak back in? Who's awake when you get home? Or where do you go next? I come back home about seven. And uh, right then, my, that's when the alarm for my 10-year-old is supposed to get up. And she's supposed to wake everybody up. And so I walk in the door and I say, are you all awake? And on a good day, I hear a chorus of four voices saying yes. And on a bad day, I only hear one or two. And then I log in uh, for work and I make my kids breakfast. Wow. So I have two kids. They are two and a half and just about five. And they are still in the like, wake up at the butt crack of dawn age. (laughs) So I don't know if you ever, did you go through that fate? How old is your youngest one? So I've got kids who are 10, 8, 6, and 5. And yes, we absolutely went through that phase. And it magically went away when they started school. When they started school, they no longer wanted to wake up early. They saved that for the weekends. Okay. Okay. All right. This is like, this is foreboding joy. No, this is like foreboding good things. I hope like, okay, great, great. Um, Okay. So tell us about the transition. And so we parents are listening, uh, working parents everywhere. And we like to know the nitty gritty. And I ask a lot of curious questions. So um, tell me like in detail about the the morning uh, spaces, like between 7am to 9am, do you get to escape and go to work with ease? Are you responsible for taking children to school, half of them, all of them? Like, what does that look like? 
So I work from home and it is the single greatest thing that has ever happened to me. So I am responding. My wife, she was working from home for about a year, but she's now back in the lab. So she will typically take off 745 or so. So I am point person for the kids. Now, the, the greatest, the second greatest thing that ever happened to me besides working from home was when my kids got old enough to dress themselves and brush their own teeth. Do they do an optimal job? Absolutely not. But is it good enough that I don't care? Yes, they are clothed. <laughs> they meet the state laws. We're okay. And if they don't match, a lot of times my wife doesn't see them before they leave the house. So it's not a big deal. So I log in as my computer is logging in. I start, I make my kids uh, bacon and eggs. And then once I get everybody fed, once I check to make sure nothing's, you know, burning down at work or whatever, I'll run upstairs, take a quick shower, and then I come back downstairs and I drop them off. And I have the drop-off time down to the second so I can tell, like, the, the way the way it's structured now and unprecedented times and all that, you can't just, like, fling your kid out. Like, there's a, a specific time. You have to wait for it to hear the bell before your kid can get out of the car. And I've got it timed down. Everybody else gets in line, but I pull into a parking spot and wait. And uh, I pull up an atomic time counter on my phone, and I watch <laughs> it go down. And today, it's supposed to, the bell's supposed to ring at 845, but it doesn't. I, and today, it was at 845 or 844 in 16 seconds and I count it down and my kids at the sound of the bell they run across the street all four in a group I make sure they're together because if uh, one or two get run over that would be suboptimal and then I <laughs> hightail it back home and at nine my work day really gets underway this is really so but this is so impressive to hear because this calculation like the the minutia of the minutes is actually I think the moment that represents parenting. So and working, right? It's just like get across the street without yes. dying. Um <laughs> what but so wait, but all of your children are in the same elementary school, I'm assuming. Sort of. So they are all okay. in the same building, and that's only going to be the case for this year. So I have three of them that are in the school proper. I have a fifth grader, a third grader, and a first grader. Now, my five-year-old was four at the start of the school year. She was not old enough for Got kindergarten, it. so they have a preschool program, but it is not affiliated with the school. It is a separate program inside the school. And the reason that odd distinction matters is only kids at the school can take the bus. So I could have put three of my kids on the bus and stayed home and worked all the time. And that would have been amazing. And I said, okay, the bus is coming to our house and it's picking up three of my children. Can't it just <laughs> take a fourth to the exact same spot? And they said, no. So for this entire school oh. year, I had to drive all four kids to school and then pick all four kids up because they would not take that fourth child because even though she's in the same building, she is not enrolled in the proper school. Oh, and then, but then in like a year or two, there's going to be a different school, right? A middle school. Yes. So starting next year, my 10 year old is going to a different school with a different start time, the middle school. And next year is the start of our bus adventure. She, none of my kids have taken a bus since my my oldest started kindergarten and at that time my wife just so happened to be off on maternity leave so for a couple months she took the bus then schedules changed around my wife went back to work and we had to go to pre-care we did for years and years before I started working from home we did pre-care we did aftercare all the daycare stuff and just this uh, ever since I started working from home now I can watch my kids or sort of kind of watch my kids and uh, and work at the same time. So we're, we're saving money on that. Next year's the big experiment. They're going back on the bus. My oldest will take the bus one way and the next three will take the bus another way. And they may or may not get there and they may or may not get home, but we won't, we won't find out till we try it. 
Oh, I can't wait for your tweets about that. Um, so, 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 and how many minutes does it take to get to school driving wise? So I have a different interpretation of this than uh, my kids do. So for me, it takes like <laughs> 10 minutes because it's from the moment I say, okay, let's go. And then there's a process of hurting them out the door and having at least one child say, oh, wait, I forgot something, even though they've been awake for an hour and a half and had plenty of time to get these things. And then, uh, you know, you get them to the vehicle, you get them strapped in, you stop whatever fights are going on. But from the time, from the moment I actually turn, put the car in motion to the school parking lot is about three minutes. But all that other stuff beforehand, I think it's closer to 10 minutes. Okay. Oh, yep. Yeah. I was going to, my follow-up question was going to be how long does it take to get them into the car, but you yes. combined it into one 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. And then the atomic timer of like getting them out and like, into great. Yes. Okay. And so you're back, you're sliding into your desk around 9 AM. Mm -hmm. Um, and the house seems to be pretty quiet. Actually seems like you have it to yourself. Which sort is, of. <laughs> okay. Tell so me about this. It, it, there's just a pile of other poor life choices to get on top of that. So I have <laughs> I have two pet pigs, as you know, and um, this, depending on the weather, if the weather's nice, they'll just go outside and leave me alone. If the weather's bad, they start banging at the pet gate trying to come in, so I will sometimes let them in, and then the older one will get into things as I try to start working. She'll find whatever food the kids left on the coffee table when they weren't supposed to and, like, launch herself on top of it like a beached whale, and I'll go and try to try to stop those crises. And also, uh, we've been, we're under a renovation. I don't think you can hear them right now, but, like, 10 feet away from me on the other side of a wall. We've got contractors there. So, so there are people coming in and out, but yes, yeah, so in an ideal situation, uh, I would be alone then for the rest of the day, but in practice, it is, it has not worked out that way. Is this one of the renovations you wrote about in your book or is it a new spectacular renovation? Okay. So in the book, I mentioned, uh, that shower in the hallway and yes. getting it taken out. This is that renovation in like, seriously month six <laughs> oh no <laughs> wasn't there another one where there was like a closet on a porch uh, like on a balcony or something it's it's you? yeah so that's that that's the the back porch the pigs walk through to get outside so that back porch okay. is open and if you read my newsletters that's where i recently had that experiment with hanging up pig feeders indoors and they fling pellets everywhere now that's a that's a whole other thing but yeah that's that that's still out there as well Oh God, renovations, especially in the pandemic, we still have a bathroom vanity that just sits in our living room because <laughs> we not, neither of us have taken it to the bedroom to then put in the bathroom. Like, I think this will take another year for us. Too because... real. We are our, our thing. So we, we have pictures that have needed to be hung up for like two to three years, I would say. And every time we get motivated, something would come up. So you got to go and get a drill or a hammer and a nail and you got to get a level. And finally, we decided that we were going to, before we hung them up, there was no need to, we need to replace the wallpaper in this room. So the wallpaper was tied into the shower project. So now yes. we have like an official excuse for why these, these pictures are still not hung up. But yes, every time I walk through the house, I, I see them sitting on the floor mocking me for my, my failures as a homeowner. <laughs> <laughs> well, we moved in the middle of the pandemic. And so we have Ooh. nothing on our walls. Like there's just, like, every time we think about putting art up, we just kind of laugh hysterically and then cry and then fall asleep, hopefully. Okay. So now I want to move into your workday because you have a very prolific um, career as a writer. And I, when I look at the amount of content creation you do, I want to ask you about that. But before we get there, I want to ask if you if your memory is accurate if it's faulty that's okay too but if, if we can go back in time pre-2016 at least how 
did you get started in your career, your chosen field, and um, especially in journalism and writing, can you, can you talk about your career path and whether or not you would, knew you would make it or how it's grown? I, I didn't know for sure that I would make it. I knew for sure that I would never quit. And those are two very different things. Yes. And uh, if I had not uh, finally gotten to the point where I went viral and started getting book deals, I would I would still be writing. I'd be doing what I was doing back then, just grinding away. I, I started, my, the very first comedy thing I ever wrote was at the end of a computer literacy class when I was 16, a sophomore in high school. I started writing a fake book of the Bible at the end of class and I emailed it to a couple of my classmates and I watched them open it and I watched them laugh and I was hooked. And I thought, okay, two people laugh. This is enough to base my life around. So I decided to be, I wanted to be a, a comedy writer. And the only comedy writer I'd ever really heard of was Dave Barry. I used to deliver newspapers. So I, I saw his column in there and I thought, okay, I'll be like Dave Barry. And uh, I just need to go and get a job in journalism and work my way up until I get a column in a big newspaper. Now that is not how Dave Barry became Dave Barry at all. I did not research this. I did zero looking into this before I decided that was going to be my career path. So I went to college. I wrote for the school newspaper there. I wrote, I was supposed to, I, I didn't report any actual news for the school paper. We had, we had very poor oversight. So I just wrote comedy articles there. And then I, um, I got out and I got a job at a newspaper and there was a rotating column. So once every like four weeks or six weeks, I got to write a funny article like I wanted. And the rest of the time I hated everything about it. I was a night cops reporter. And so I was always contacting people like on the worst day of their life or going to a meeting where everybody was angry about everything. It's like, oh, it's just like, I get, I feel really strong secondhand embarrassment. And when you go and you watch like angry people make fools of themselves, for a living Ooh, like that. That's yeah. my version of hell. It really was. And so I, uh, after a year of what I thought I was going to do for the rest of my life, I bailed out of that, uh, which was probably for the best. Cause right after I got out of there, it was the first of like 9,000 rounds of layoffs that have never stopped for the print industry. I don't know why I thought in 2007, it was a good idea to go into print media, but again, it goes back to the whole, you know, not researching what you're doing. I just kind of had this idea of if, if I can find some place, place that'll print my words, it'll be okay. So I got out on my own. I got a different job, just a, a boring cubicle job that paid much better, which is awesome because, you know, literally every job pays better than a journalism job. You cannot go down at all. I remember driving to work at, uh, to work at the newspaper and hearing jobs for like factory workers who, you know, don't need a college degree or anything and thinking, man, I could, I should have done that. So I got out, I got a cubicle job and I thought, okay, uh, writing's not going to be my main thing. It's going to be my side thing, but I'm never going to stop. And so I started writing on a blog and I ended up uh, over the course of a decade, I think I wrote something close to 400,000 words. Now for reference, uh, my first comedy book that did get published was 40,000 words. This blog, free content was 400,000 words, uh, a, a thousand word article after thousand word article. And I could not get anybody to read it. And so finally, I came very late to Twitter. I came in 2012. I think it started in 2007 uh, when the first early adopters got on. I thought, okay, I'll go there and share links. That's got to be a way to get people to connect. And uh, I put the links out there. Nobody clicked on them. I was like, okay, you can't do that either. You have to put like actual native content on Twitter. So I had to put space out the links by writing jokes. And I started writing jokes. 
And Twitter gave me something I'd never had before. It gave me, it gave me instant feedback. So you write those thousand word articles and nobody reads them or two people read them. And one person says, ha ha, that's awesome. And uh, the other person says, you're the worst, delete this blog. And that doesn't really give you anything <laughs> useful. But if you write a joke, if it's good, people like it and they retweet it and it sees a bigger audience. And if they don't like it, if it's not good, it just kind of fades away into obscurity, which is really the most painless way to fail. And so through that, kind of doing A-B testing about what worked and what didn't. I went in this at this with scientific rigor and I figured out that what people really liked, what really, what really resonated was jokes about my kids. And I kind of got this down to an art form. I just practiced every day, distilling these conversations down to these quick, you know, back and forths. And uh, I just produced it like it was my job, which it very much was not. I was not earning any money at this. And uh, and through that, I, I increased my Twitter account to about 200,000 followers. And I said, okay, that's great. And I guess I skipped a step earlier when I, when I said I was going to write on the side. Um, I, 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 ultimately, my goal was to, you know, write books because I figured the newspaper column thing was out. And uh, I looked at everybody. I, I read all the sites about query letters and all that. And I realized that they're just countless hordes of people trying to get book deals. And I thought that's never going to work for me. I need to get an audience first. And if I get an audience, then maybe the book publishers will come to me. And I didn't get the audience through the blog, but I did get the audience through Twitter. So I got up to 200,000 followers just doing joke after joke after joke. And they got, they got progressively better. I like to think I was always funny, but I look back at those early tweets and they're just, they're, they're terrible. They really are. I, I so <laughs> I, I actually legitimately got better. I, I, I definitely deserve to be ignored early on. And then then uh, BuzzFeed ran an article on me and uh, I'd had articles written about me before, but theirs was different because it had, it featured like 20 of my tweets with, you know, some behind the scenes stuff in between uh, the tweets, but each of the tweets had a clickable link back to me. And when you clicked on those tweets, which were some of my best, it took you to 16,000 other tweets just like that. And that article went viral. And in turn, my Twitter account went viral. I gained, I think a hundred thousand followers that first weekend. And by the end of the month, I had an agent. And by the end of the summer, I had my first book deal. So that was, that was kind of the spark that ignited it. People here who hear about the thing, man, that all happened really fast. It's like, well, really it didn't happen so fast. It was, it was a very long road. And what people always see is, is the last part, which is, you know, I guess, I guess if they're going to see one thing, I'd like to see them want them to see it when I finally succeed rather than, you know, me toiling obscurity for an indefinite period of time. Right. You, you wrote 400,000 words on your blog and then 40,000 words in the book and then a lot of really bad tweets uh, <laughs> <laughs> it, per your accounting, per your accounting. Yes. So, but I do want to, I want to go back to the before the success stuff, because I think it's so easy to see the success. And then our brains do this like weird, like we create, invent a line or we invent the story behind it. And uh, you said something here. You said, um, well, and I wasn't earning very much money. Can you tell me about this? Like, what was it like to toil away as a writer writing your blog? Did you have a side job? Did you have an yes. agreement with your partner about how little money you could make <laughs> and still have children? So like, what does that look like? Through through every every stage of this, I had a day job. I still have a day job. I, I you know, I'd like to imply I'm this big successful author and my books pay all my bills, but but they don't. I mean, that's not the way really writing in 2021 works. So I do all of this in addition to. So I have a day job and then I have my my, my social media stuff that I put out and then I, and all the podcasts and all of that and all the free content I put out. And then I have the books I write. I just kind of do it all. And I think that the biggest tip I can give to anybody who's chasing their dreams is don't chase, don't quit your day job. 
And, and that sounds like terrible, mean advice. Like, well, you don't believe in me. It's like, no, I'm telling you not to quit your day job because I do believe in you. Because if you quit your day job, you've given yourself a deadline. You, you mean, you're going to run out of money. You're not going to be able to pay your bills. You're not going to be able to get food. You know, your partner's going to get fed up with you. Your kids aren't going to get the support they need. Uh, keep that day job. And if you make sure what your side project is something that you're passionate about, that you do want to work into that free time, whatever little or however much of it you have. And, and that's what keeps you going. And that's how I knew I was going to be in this for the long term because I never quit that day job. Well, I quit the newspaper job, but I, I replaced it with another job. I didn't go and you know become unemployed. And so every day I'd come home and I'd write and for years. I just really didn't sleep. I was, I would go to bed at one or two in the morning and get up at six. And then I'd go and work a full day and come home and pick up my kids and do all that. And then everybody else in the house would go to bed and then I'd sit down and write. And, uh, and that, that was how I, that's how I got by for a long time. I'm finally now that I've achieved a little more success. I'm, I'm finally sleeping again, which is wonderful. I, luckily I don't need as much as some people. I only need about six or six and a half hours a night. That's, that's enough for me to get by, but yeah, don't, don't quit your day job. Keep at it so you can support yourself. So you give yourself enough runway to really take off. Uh, if you give yourself that artificial constraint, you're just giving yourself an excuse to quit. You run out of money at the end of the summer or the end of the year, your savings are depleted. You're like, well, I gave it a shot. I guess I'm just not going to have dreams for the rest of my life. And that's terrible. I mean, keep working, keep doing your passion on the side, and then nobody can starve you out. You can keep going forever until you make it or until you perfect your craft or whatever your definition of success is. Mm-hmm. Yes. I love that. I love that. I also, it's the atomic clock talk. It, mm, atomic clock is ticking. That's not, that's like a tongue twister to say but on, your, <laughs> on the runway for your, when you quit. Um, folks listening, you know this, but uh, one of the things I negotiated in my job was a four-day work week. So Wednesdays Ooh. were for writing and yoga. I was doing yoga teacher training. And so there are also like creative alternatives to like zero or 100, which I, which a lot of us talk about on this podcast. Okay. James. Um, so, so I want to talk about the breadth of work that you do. Cause I think the volume is important here. And I can't, I, honestly, I can't quite get my head around all that you create. Cause what I see from the outside uh, observing is there's a weekly podcast, there's your Twitter feed, which I don't know how many, 20 times a day, five times a day, like a lot. <laughs> um, there's your daily comic, I think. There's the three books that you've written. So what do you have a clear roadmap and schedule for your creation? Or is it just like flowing out of you? I don't know how. I, my secret is that I, I double everything up. So like, for example, I go to the gym in the morning and uh, this, this was the greatest multitasking thing I've ever done. So I had, I've actually, so I had three books for adults out, three parenting books. And I read a fourth book. It was a, a guided journal for kids. And this one, the right. how to be a man book is my fifth. And then my sixth book is going to be coming out next year. It's a science fiction book. And everything had been piling up and I hadn't had time, but one of my, in my writing process, when I do my editing, especially once things are a little more polished, a little closer, what happens is I use a voice or a text to voice thing and I have it read it back to me. So I went to the gym and the whole time I was at the gym, I was actually editing my book because I had, I was, I had my phone reading this 90,000 word manuscript back to me at triple speed. And every time something caught that didn't sound right, I'd pause it and I make a note in a blank file to say, go back and change this. And so, and then later in the day, we 
foolishly started this, uh, this yard project, there's a retaining wall out there that's going to kill me. And then, uh, you know, in the coming days, like I'd be working on the retaining wall and I'd also be editing the book at the same time. Uh, I do the similar thing, you know, with, with my kids, I'm hanging out with my, with my kids, but I'm also selfishly minding them for material. You know, what things are you going to say <laughs> or do that are going to inspire this, uh, this tweet or, uh, you know, this newsletter every week, I write a 2000 word newsletter that goes out about a story from the week. And that's all heavily dependent on what they do. So I'm never just doing one thing. You know, if I'm doing my day job, I'm also tweeting. I'm also thinking about books. I'm also doing that. Um, and that's one of the reasons I love audiobooks so much. I can't, I actually, one of the things I can't make myself do anymore is sit down and, and stare at a page and read because it's like, I'm only doing one thing. It's like, I could be listening to this as an audiobook and I could be folding laundry at the same time. I could be picking up kids from school. I could be doing a million other things. So yeah, the, the, the having books read back to me, either my own or other people's has been a real game changer for me. That's so fascinating. The audio component, I hear a lot of parents talk about this because we're doing such repetitive tasks, cooking, mm -hmm. whatever, and yes. schlepping. That makes so much sense. Okay, but technical question. I imagine that you're at the gym and you're listening and then there's a moment where you're like, oh, this needs fixing. Where is that file? Is it a paper notebook? Are you running to a computer that's on top of a stack of weights? Like what, how do you know? So that is, annotation? I use the best, the best uh, writing program for a phone is Google Docs. Uh, I've not found anything better. The worst program for a for editing on your phone is Microsoft Word. So I write my books entirely in Google Docs. If they're all in the cloud, I can access them from my laptop, my desktop, my phone. It works great. Unfortunately, once you enter the editing process, every editor everywhere uses Microsoft Word. And if you try to edit a book in Microsoft Word on your phone, it's like trying to do brain surgery wearing mittens. You just cannot do it. <laughs> so what I do is I download the Microsoft Word file. And then I have a separate app. I think it's called read aloud or at read aloud. And I use that to read the text back to me. So I have Microsoft word closed. It's all over in that other app. And then when I, uh, when it catches something that I think needs to be changed, I go and I just have a file called scratch pad. That's kind of my catch all in Google docs. I open that up and then I will type in like the three or four words I need that when I'm back at my desktop, I can just do control F and search for those three or four words and find exactly where I need to be. And then I'll put a quick note about what I want to change. And that's how I yeah. did it. So I came back, you know, from the gym with 40 or 50 notes and I sat down on my computer, did control F, searched down each one. And by that, by that stage, uh, things were pretty minor. Now, if this were an earlier edit where I had to go and like hack out paragraphs and reword everything, I definitely could not do that at the gym. It was, this was only a, a final stage polish thing, but I was, I was pretty proud of myself for actually pulling it off. That's amazing. Okay. So, and you, you added to the stack that I listed, it was six books, not three, and then a 2000 word newsletter every week. So there's so much going on here in terms of content creation. And this is all outside of your day job. Can I ask you what your day job is? I don't actually know. I, I will not disclose it. That's why you don't know okay. what it is. And that's, <laughs> that, and that, and that's one of the things I, I started early on. So I, um, you know, when you're writing, it's like, I didn't, back when I was earning no money, I couldn't make my, have my day job, you know, make me pick. It's like, you got to choose this or that, you know, cause obviously you're going to pick the thing that pays you money. Cause I didn't know for sure if writing would ever pay me anything. And even when writing does finally pay you and you, when you get to my stage where you think you're pretty successful, it's like, yeah, this is great as a supplemental income. If I had to live just on this, that'd be kind of scary. You know, you, the more money, money for books comes in, it doesn't come in like weekly, like a paycheck, you get a big chunk here and then you get nothing 
nothing for a long time. And then you get another chunk here and maybe it's not so big. So, uh, so yeah. So anyway, early on, I just made a, a point that I was not going to tweet about work. I was not going to talk about work. It was just going to be completely separate. And that was how I compartmentalized it uh, to keep myself from getting fired. Cause not getting fired is a, a great thing. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That, so I, I did, I did adequate research then. I like this also. <laughs> better to think of, better to think of this as a bonus. Like you're, it's yes. like, Oh, my annual bonus, as opposed to like a recurring income, which would cause heart exactly. palpitations. Yes. <laughs> Got it. Okay. Um, so, so I, I'm curious then, and this wasn't on my list of planned questions, but I'd love to ask you about it. Um, uh, about, you know, you don't, you have a rule where you don't talk about your work, mm -hmm. but the content and the recipe that you found is you talk about your fam and your kids. Mm -hmm. What's going to happen as they get older? And how do you think about like putting them into the internet world? Do you have, do you have like thoughts and feelings about this? So we had to kind of draw the line early on when I first, I, I think the first time this came up was when Reader's Digest found my blog and they, they published things. And I thought that, I thought for sure that's when I was going to go viral. I thought that this is it. This is when I go, hit it big. And it, Reader's it Digest. Was, yes, it was not, a, well, it has, a, it is, oddly enough, it is still the largest circulation publication in the United States yeah. uh, by far, by far. And it, there, there were, that's why when I finally went viral that one time when BuzzFeed got in touch with me, I didn't think anything of it because there have been like 10 or 15 times before where I thought this is it. Wow. This is the one that makes yeah. me go big. But anyway, when those early false alarms started, I realized we needed to figure out what we were going to do about the kids. Now, some people won't share pictures of their children at all, uh, but they'll use their real names. I went the opposite way because honestly, all little kids kind of look the same. Like picking them up from daycare in the old days, I was always lucky if I came home with the right ones from the back, all those little brown haired girls look the same. <laughs> So that, that part didn't concern me. I just wanted, you know, in practical terms to, for people not to be able to Google their real names and find where they go to school and find their home address. So that was, so that's why we came up with pseudonyms for all the kids. And, uh, you know, we try when we take pictures, you got to make sure not to show stuff, you know, don't, don't show street signs or things like that. Uh, as far as like the stories I tell about them. So my jokes are a mix, you know, they've got it kind of that, that greater parenting truth underneath that make people, people relate to. And that's why the account's gone viral. But not all the jokes are literally true every time. Sometimes my kids will say something great and it fits in 280 characters and I'm done and they make my life super easy. But more often it's a longer, more rambling story. And I have to think, okay, how do I condense this down into something other people, people can relate to just a quick back and forth rather than a 20 minute dialogue or, you know, they do something weird to think, okay, let's, let's, you know, take this a step further and removed and, and turn it into something creative that, that other people can share. And so it's kind of, I, I call it like, it's like a made for TV movie based on real life events like the things there happened but they're a step removed that you know they're punched up there's there's drama added there's humor added to that and i think that's a good way to look at it that's how i tell my kids to look at it too it's like these tweets are about us but they're not us. There's a degree of separation there. And the fake names make that easier. When I'm calling you by your fake name, you know, okay, on some level, this is a performance. We're putting out a product. We're portraying ourselves in a certain way. We're showing a certain side of our lives. Now that becomes more complicated as the kids get older and they can kind of become their own broadcasters. So right now the top profession that every child wants to be is a YouTuber, oddly enough. Yeah. 
And they don't, my kids don't care at all about Facebook or Twitter or any place else I've gone viral. They don't care about my platforms that actually mean something. The only thing they care about is YouTube, which by far is my smallest platform by like orders of magnitude. But my six-year-old actually introduced me to our new neighbors the other day as a YouTuber. Like to her, that is my greatest accomplishment. And they love to go on there. They they love to go on the videos and talk. And so we always have to have a talk beforehand. It's like, okay, guys, we got to use fake names. If you use real names, we're going to uh, have to stop it. But, you know, now my kids, my oldest daughter finally has a phone. So she's getting closer to the age where she'll be able to have social media accounts. And so we'll have to have that discussion as well. And I think the line we're going to do is you can have personal pages, you can do all that, you know, but as we, if we're going to put things out for a broader audience, we always have to remember that one step removed and use our fake names. Anything basically that goes out in front of the huge audience that I have uh, will always be under that kind of one step or move banner, both for our safety and for our sanity. It, it really helps both. Mm, this is so interesting to think about because it is such a big topic for parents to think mm-hmm. about, like, what are the identities of our children and how do we protect them and mm-hmm. give them space? But also like the opposite extreme of not even confessing or, or sharing that you have children is also an invisibility. That's strange. Yes. Like to me, it was so important. Like, no, this is part of like, this is a huge part of who I am, but mm-hmm. I don't want to be defined as a mother first, mm-hmm. but I also don't want to be like conspicuously absent in the business world and be like, the kids have disappeared. They don't exist. <laughs> right. Like there's just that like a huge chasm and how do you do it? And, and I think there's so many right ways and so many wrong ways and so many gray ways, right? Like there's just so many different options. I like how you have given them um, the, the fake names. It's like, it really invites the kids creativity and imagination to join in. Like they, I, I can see my kids understanding like, Oh no, this is something mom makes up. Like this is. Yes. And it's, cool. it's funny to see them transition so something like so that they understand i can put things out there and you know every kid you know say look at me look at me look at me but they know now when i look at them they want me to get out my phone too so other people can see too and it's funny though i'll start recording and they'll just interest like automatically transition into fake names it's like okay they're they're performing now too so they 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 they, they know what's what it doesn't always go that smoothly but they uh my my six-year-old actually has been coaching me so she watches youtube the most and she keeps coaching me on when i'm you know what to do how to get up to my million subscribers so i get that golden play button for the wall and what to say how to beg people to follow me and it's like kid i've got twenty thousand followers i'm never making it to a million but she's she's trying her best to coach me up there she uh she is counting down the days till she's old enough for her own youtube account Oh, that's cool. <laughs> oh, what wild world. Uh, what a wild world we live in, too, because none of this existed when yeah, I was a child. I know. Like, it's, it, were you, are, I don't know if I'm older than you or not. I still, I'm, I'm probably the last generation that lit, that straddled the internet line. We didn't have internet in my house till I was in eighth grade. And looking back, like, that's like saying you grew up without indoor plumbing. Like, I, what is a house no. without internet? That's nothing. <laughs> It's so well, and it's really divided in this country because there's still lots of places where kids don't have internet and then Mm -hmm. others where they have tablets and the pandemic has made it such a challenge. So I was born in 1983 and like Y2K was a big thing. Okay. Um, And then 2001, I started college. 2004, Facebook came out. And I think we got our first cell phones. I think pagers were a thing when I was a 11th, like 10th, 11th, 12th grade. Like everyone was like paging each other for a hot minute, like two years. And then (laughs) it was like not cool. (laughs) So 
Yeah, you're, you're just, you're two years older than I am. So I was born in 85 and went to college in 2003 and I made it all through college without a cell phone. I thought that's the stupidest thing. I don't want people to be able to contact me. And I didn't get one until I, the summer after I graduated, right before I got married, there was like a magical three month period where I live on, lived on my own and my future wife and now current wife, she got me a cell phone. Just it couldn't text or anything. It was just one of those razor flip phones. And I'd never had one before. And uh, now, I mean, I use my phone, I use it to write books, I use it to run a social media, you know, business, I use it for everything. And uh, it never leaves my hand. And like that device, I, I didn't even own one till I was out of college. It just, it's mm-hmm. so weird how fast that moves. It's a different world. I remember when smartphones too came mm-hmm. um, into our world because, so I lived in San Francisco at the time and in San Francisco, you're like sharking for parking. You are driving around blocks, <laughs> like endlessly trying to find a place to squeeze your car into like a vertical hill. Yeah. And it's so hard. And bef- pre-smartphone, I could walk away from my car and remember exactly where I'd parked it. <laughs> Post smartphone, I would get out of the car, open my phone, look at it. And then the next day have no clue where I parked it. <laughs> and so it was just like a really demarcating point where I was like, now I have to text myself where I parked yeah. my car. <laughs> okay, go ahead. Oh, I was just saying, there's a lot of science behind that too. If you don't, if you're don't, if you know, you don't have to remember something you don't, I've had now, I guess I, I still remember the days when I had an Atlas to like find my way on cross country trips. Now I use my, my cell phone, the GPS, and I don't remember how I got there. Like it's not locked in my memory because I don't have to worry about remembering it. So I let my mind wander to a million other things. Uh, but yeah, it definitely has diminished my sense of direction because of that. And I also take pictures of my car when I park, cause I won't remember either. Cause I don't have to. I feel like the theme parks of the future are going to be places where you can't have a phone and you have to like do an adventure crossing map and make it through like a large journey on your own using paper and pens and navigation. (laughs) That'll be like the adventure challenge. book i'm going to switch over here your latest book is called how to be a man whatever that means and you write story threads about i want to say like the seemingly conflicting and maybe even useless advice that men are given um and or ingrained in or the cultural stories we tell and then also the meaningful ones like there's all these i just i felt I felt so many different things reading your book because I was like, huh, what's that piece of advice for? And what does that mean? Um, and I want to talk to you about it, about the title of the book to start, what it means to be a man. Where I think- did that title Go ahead. The title. So how to be a man. It seems like I have how in all of my titles. Apparently, I don't know how to title a book without it. But that was really what I was getting at with this. I had all these these stories from my pre-social media days, my stories really from outside the scope of when I was a parent that I wanted to tell. And I thought, what what theme ties these all together? And it was really, you know, manhood. What were the lessons I learned growing up from all these experiences? What were the lessons that I should have learned and failed to learn? And I think sometimes the lessons you learn are really the lessons that, that nobody would ever sit you down, look you in the eye and say, this is what you need to do. Like in, in the law gnome story, which is my, my favorite chapter in the whole book, it's right off the bat, number chapter number two. And I, I talk about how, you know, in each those chapters, the narrative ones, they start off with basically what the lesson should be. And then it ends with maybe a more nuanced definition of it was, but basically the lesson from all that was trust no one and lawyer up. And like, that's a, that's a terrible thing to say. Like, I'm never going to teach my kids that, but it's like, you know what, if you're going to grow up in a world with laws and the way things work, that 
actually actually is a very important lesson to learn as a man. Uh, yeah. There are other lessons in there, like the wallet thing. That's my been my crusade for forever. Men put their wallets in their back pocket because men put their po- <laughs> wallets in their back pockets and then they sit on them. You know, you get all these soft cushions and all this stuff and all they ever feel is the pain of sitting on a wallet. And I had a, a podcast uh, the other day with somebody who'd also read the book and he said, yeah, I sit on my wallet. It gives me back problems. It hurts all the time. Not going to stop doing it. Why do we do that? It's because it's what men do. And there are so many things like that, that men do them simply because that's what men do. Men do. And it, it drives me crazy. What, where did this like, was there an aha moment when you're like, this is the title of the book? Did the title come first or last? Like, how did you conceptualize it? The title was the very last thing to come. We had the hardest time with this title because the, the problem with the whole book, I mean, you, you've got 60,000 words trying to define what, to, what it means to be a man. And I never was able to define it like for anything that would boil down to a sentence. So if you can't boil it down to a sentence, how can you boil it down to a fragment for just a title? So I had how to be a man. And that doesn't really lead to exactly what the book is because it's not like a step-by-step guide. And we were having like our millionth meeting about this. It was a a conference call. My agent's like, how to be a man, whatever that means. And he just threw it out there. And we all just sat there in like stunned silence. Like, oh, that's what we were missing this entire time was that parenthetical, whatever that means. And then we had the the subhead on on there, you know, lessons in modern masculinity from a questionable source. And because I wanted to be real upfront with what I'm giving you here, I think I am the most questionable of questionable sources on this. If you look at me, you're not going to say, well, there's the manliest man out there in the world. I don't think I meet a lot of those traditional definitions, but yet technically I am a man going through this modern world. So I, I shared my questionable advice and hopefully it'll, it'll help somebody out. I also, I just think it's, it's, there's like a, a cultural moment happening in terms of like, what does it mean to be a parent and to be a male parent and a female parent? What are these roles that we're inheriting? Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm curious, like, how do you think about that when you, when you think about raising four daughters and I'm over here raising two, as far as I know, little boys. <laughs> and I just like, I'm, I like, I'm so scared um and like desperate to raise them to be i don't like not good little boys but like like thoughtful kind compassionate um human beings and i'm scared of what the world will bring to them so i don't know how do you think about how to be a guy and a girl in this world <laughs> and and all of the spaces in between so I think below a, a certain age, kids are more or less androgynous. They really, I mean, the way you raise a boy and the way you they raise a girl, people say, well, boys are like this or girls are like that. I, I don't know that that's really the case. My people will say girls are quiet or my girls are not quiet at all, or girls aren't as rough as rough and tumble. My kids have a rolling battle from the moment they wake up to the, the moment that, you know, things shut down. But, you know, as they get older, there are those more defined gender roles. And every once in a while, there'll be a moment like, oh, this is, I guess, I guess things are different. Like, like uh, when we get ready to go out to some big formal event, a wedding or something like that, it takes me 30 seconds to get ready. And then I'll go and check on the kids and they've got, you know, 95 parts to their dresses that have to go on. And then there's all these things I never even knew about. Tights aren't the same thing as leggings aren't the same things. There's, there's like a thousand versions of leggings with a thousand different names that I didn't know. And as they get older, I think there are more and more of those moments. You know, I've got a kid on the cusp of puberty and that's going to be a conversation for her and her mom where for the first time it's like, you know, I should probably sit this one out because I'm not the best qualified person to have that. If you need somebody to teach you how to survive the zombie apocalypse, I'm your guy. If you need somebody to talk you through, you know, what it means to have a monthly cycle, eh, 
I should probably sit that one out because I'm not I'm not the most qualified in that department. Uh, so it, it's been it's been a, a process kind of watching them uh, kind of grow into that. And at the same time, it's interesting to see. Um, you know, what, what interests they pick up naturally. You think, well, are they going to love dolls and Barbies? Are they going to love, love Star Wars or whatever? My wife and I are both huge nerds. We're Lord of the Rings fans and Star Wars fans. And, and some of my kids pick that up. My oldest daughter loves Marvel movies. My next kid just hates them, hates them with a passion, won't watch them at all. And so they all kind of have their moments where they, they seem to fit traditional gender roles and they have moments where they completely defy them. And I think that's a lot of what it means to, to raise a son or raise a daughter uh, these days is just kind of shepherd them through there to to make their own choices about how they want to express themselves and who they want to be. I mean, I really want to see what you tweet about um, the cycles. I think there's a lot of fun <laughs> here. I mean, because seriously, like, like we bleed every month. Like yeah. it's we have power. It is pretty rad. Um, I I will tell you a story that I think you will laugh at. I uh, um, and this is like in detail, but listeners know that I go okay. in detail. So get brace yourself. Okay, um, I'm braced. <laughs> ready, brace. Um, but I think that we should talk about these things so openly because there's such a culture of shaming around mm -hmm. the period. So I don't know. I like unsolicited advice. You don't have to sit this one out. Um, and and I only say that because I am surrounded by boys in my household. Um, yeah. And so no one else has the same anatomy as I do. And so I'm the only one who has a period and I have these cool new fashion. This tech didn't exist 30 years ago, but this cool new fashioned underwear where you could just like bleed straight into it but you have to wash them out and so I was in the bathroom washing them out and the entire tub looked like it was full of blood <laughs> and my five-year-old comes running in and he goes oh my god like he thought I was dying he oh. was like mom <laughs> what is happening and I oh. was like well I bleed and he goes is that gonna happen to me like was, <laughs> we had this whole long conversation about it i was like no i just happened to be lucky enough to bleed like every 28 days on the dot and he was like where does it come from like we really there's like an in-depth conversation that had to happen um and it's just it's one of those things where i want my kids to to grow up being like like to just know to know mm -hmm. that this is a thing that they don't have to be afraid of and like and also yeah. like they could see that I have breasts and they don't. And he's mm -hmm. wondering like, when do I get those? And just so many interesting conversations. So thanks. I hope you're braced. I hope that wasn't too hard. <laughs> yeah. People, people <laughs> keep warning me. They're like, just watch out for the teenage years. Just watch out. And I will have one year or part of a year where I'll have, I'll have a 19 year old, a 17 year old, a 15 year old and a 13 year old, like for one brief moment, I will have all four daughters as teenagers. And they're like, there's mm -hmm. going to be so much drama. And it's like, I don't think you know how much drama there is now. I can't, I can't imagine uh, there being a lot more than there is at this moment. Uh, more, more to your point though, about like the, the different perspectives on everything. Um, they do sometimes they, they'll surprise me with, with considerations that I, as a man just never had, like my eight-year-old, especially she'll ask, we'll see something. And she'll be like, well, can a, can a girl do that? Like for jobs, like, well, can a girl be president? Well, now we've got a female vice president. You know, I never even thought it's never thought to me, uh, occurred to me to ask, well, can a guy do that job? Right. Uh, my, right. my eight year old now, she wants to be a construction worker. And it's like, yeah, you absolutely can be a construction worker. Or we saw something about the Pope on TV. She's like, well, can a girl be a Pope? And I was like, oh, actually that's an example. They don't let girls be Pope. So there's, there's all these, all these gender demarcations that I don't even consider because they never held me back. But you know, my kids looking at this, they're, they're seeing barriers where I don't. So I hope oh. I, yeah. Although to be fair, if my eight-year-old wanted to be Pope, I would have discouraged that, that field of <laughs> career anyway. For that particular child or? In, oh, in... both in general, oh, yeah, but okay. especially for that child. She should not gotcha. be Pope. <laughs> <laughs> oh.
<laughs> something else better, something yes. else better out there for you. <laughs> um, oh, this is fascinating. I, I am looking forward to all that you learn too. Like I, I grew up in a family of four. So my dad um, had three daughters and a son. Okay. And we were all teenagers at the same time. Yeah, there's nine years between, no, not quite. We There's nine years between us. So 11 to to 19 was our our uh, most intense year and then one got shipped <laughs> off to college so you know um so okay you also talk about and this this may turn to be a slightly tougher question so mm -hmm. take it as you will um you also talk about being one of eight and having a family of five mm -hmm. can you talk a little bit about this with our audience because this is something that comes up for so many parents so yes, so that's the the one chapter, kind of the biggest risk I took in this book. I, I put some more personal stuff, some more vulnerable stuff in there uh, that's not necessarily comedy, but I really thought it, it belonged in the book because I, I, I couldn't be honest and write a book about how to be a man without kind of the two defining moments of my child and adulthood. Uh, and that was, uh, you know, we had a, our firstborn, our was stillborn, and then growing up, uh, we had a similar instance uh, where my mom lost a baby, my brother, uh, just after a few hours, and we and we saw it coming ahead of time, and it was uh, it was really very traumatic. It was a very hard time for the family, and uh, that's not something that uh, it is easy to talk about. It's, you know, we always say we have four kids because that's the the socially acceptable answer. Because if you say you have five kids and they can only see four, they're going to ask, "Where's the fifth one?" And that's not really a conversation you want to have with random acquaintances all the time. Uh, you know, to bring up, it just, it's not the socially acceptable way to do that. And then at the same time, I, I turned around and I, I now disclose that story in a book that's going to be, you know, completely public and out there for whoever wants to buy it. Uh, so that, that is going to be uh, different for me, but yes, it's, uh, it really shifts your perspective. And when you start talking about it, you realize how many other people have had this exact same experience. And they don't talk about it for the same reason. You know, how many other people are there out there who've lost a child or sometimes they've had, you know, multiple miscarriages or anything else. And e even there, there's kind of, I think, degrees of trauma and losing, losing a child, losing a pregnancy is never easy. Uh, but the longer that pregnancy goes, the harder it is. So we lost our daughter at six months and at six months, I mean, that's, you know, a stillbirth like it. You have to go into the hospital overnight and you have to deliver and, and you come out and we, you know, we saw my daughter, she was, you know, fully formed, just very small. And that was, uh, and it was surprising. So it's a topic that I, I don't think about. I try not to dwell on too much because it seems like it's never going to get really, you know, any much better, but, you know, here I had to go and really, and really face that really dive into what did this teach me? What did I learn? And I think one of the biggest things I learned is that this is a pain that many of us share and that we can really help each other through because we've, we've been there. And uh, unfortunately, it's not something that's ever going to go away. I think that this is something even as medical science improves, I mean, we're never going to have a hundred percent success rate in the delivery room or with pregnancies. Uh, so it's something we need to be prepared to help people with in the future and just kind of understand that it is a hard time. And just because you don't see them coming home with a child, just because you don't see their pain doesn't mean that that pain isn't there. Yeah. A hundred percent. What did people do for you or what did you all do that really helped you through that time? Uh, the, 
the community can't well, when, I, when I was younger, you know, we had a very strong faith community. We were close to the Catholic church there, and that really helped my, my parents. I think they kind of banded together. We, we prayed a lot when that was going on. Now for when we lost our daughter, I was older and we lived in a suburb where we were, we were completely alone. We didn't know anybody here. Uh, we didn't, uh, we went to the church here, but we hadn't really made any friends. <laughs> Not so good at making friends as an adult. And my parents were an hour away. My wife's parents were 45 minutes away. So it was kind of, it was kind of completely different to go through that without like a pre-built community uh, say what you will about faith, but uh, especially like in the Catholic church, you, you move into a new town or a new suburb or new wherever, and you show up there and you've kind of got a pre-built community. It's like, oh, okay, I just show up here and these are my people. And we didn't, uh, we didn't have this here. We, we felt very alone. So, and we, when we went through this, we didn't put an announcement in the paper because nobody here knew who we were anyway. And we didn't tell uh, our friends. Uh, we just, you know, I, we figured they'd hear through the great fine, but we just kind of wanted to, uh, we didn't really want to make everybody else miserable, I guess. It was, everyone was so awkward and so uncomfortable through the whole process every time it came up. And it's, it was just exhausting. So we thought mm-hmm. we're just going to limit this. We're just So we went to have the graveside service because she didn't even, the way the, the religious laws were, she didn't even get a full funeral because she was never born alive. It was just like a prayer service graveside. We only told our parents. But when I opened that door, uh, it wasn't just my parents there. They had... Uh, they had told our friends and uh they all came together and that was uh that was a moment that was uh, i still I, I still get choked up thinking about that that uh everybody came through for us and that that really helped oh thank you for telling me um, and thanks for letting me ask um mm-hmm. there are so many parents listening that go through this that it's really meaningful to mm-hmm. them to be able to hear other people. And I've never had a dad on the show. Um, so I haven't had the chance to ask a dad what it's like for them going through it. Um, and so just thanks for letting me ask you. Oh, thank you. Thank you for asking it. it uh, <laughs> it's not easy, but it's something that needs to be asked. Yeah. Um, so uh, where's my last question? It's in front of me. <laughs> <laughs> this is the problem I ran into with the book too. It's like, I put that chapter in there. It's like, where do you go from here? <laughs> no, I think it's, I mean, so I, I run um, a community for women who are navigating parenting and business. And mm-hmm. we have 40 people in that community this year, but I've also done 175 episodes of this podcast. And I just, this topic is probably one of the most discussed behind closed oh. doors because people are so desperate to talk about it and mm-hmm. and longing to but there isn't a place out in culture at large to talk about it and we don't know what to say to each other um or how to help as well and so it, it, it's just it's something i i am really blessed to be able to get to talk to so many people about it and to bring light to this conversation so I'm so sorry also for the loss. I just want to say that, by the <laughs> well, thank way. Thank you. Um, yeah. And thanks for writing about it. Um, so being that you are one of the first dads that I've interviewed for the show, I don't know if you knew that, surprise. Oh, wow. Because <laughs> um, um, uh, we started, uh, the podcast was called Startup Pregnant for the first 150 oh. episodes. And I interviewed specifically women um, in and around pregnancy. And then we expanded to Startup Parent to talk to more folks and we've been starting to interview dads. So now that I'm moving to interviewing dads, my question for you is what should I be asking dads about parenting and what questions would you really want to hear on a podcast about business and parenting? 
I think uh, it's important to treat dads just like you treat moms with the questioning. It's even the idea that there's kind of a delineation between the two kind of kind of sets you up for a false dichotomy right off the start. It's yeah. like, well, moms do it this way and dads do it that way. And I, I think especially now that both parents work, I, I just don't know that that's the case so much. I mean, years ago, if one parent was going to stay home, it was generally the mom. And that's, you know, the, the way it happened, not every time, but a lot of the times. Uh, but now things are so fluid. So now, you know, at the moment I'm working from home and my wife isn't. So I'm basically a stay at home dad, you know, all summer, it's going to be me and the kids home. All, all the breaks are, I'm the one who picks them up and drops them off. I'm the one who go takes them to all the doctor's appointments and, you know, the sports things is just, cause I've got that flexibility. Uh, so I just say, I think it's important just not, not to make the assumption that the, that the dad is the sidekick, that they're the secondary caregiver. And I know that dynamic still plays itself out and it probably plays itself out more than it should. And that's a place that men could do better, uh, but it doesn't always play itself out. I think it's kind of important to come into that from a neutral perspective and just say, Hey, what's, what's your parenting experience been like rather than, you know, making assumptions about, you know, where they might be falling short right off the bat. Hmm. Love that. Well, I asked you many of the same questions I asked all my other. <laughs> I'm sure. Uh, no, I wasn't. I, I wasn't. I wasn't accusing you of anything. Absolutely That's not. Fine. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to imply no, that. No, I didn't take it that way at all. Okay. I just. I was like. Okay. I was like. Okay. Great. Um, okay. So we're gonna close this interview by asking you what time is school pickup, and then what time is bedtime. Take us through those closing moments if you're. Okay. Ready. School pickup is three forty-five ish. It is not as precise as uh, drop off because they have to meander their way out of the building and we've been very fortunate to have in-person school but with covid they space things out and so it yeah so i would say if i get there by 348 i'm usually pretty good to pick up the kids right then uh and then when i get home uh bedtime on school nights is supposed to be 8 30 but baths baths are seldom quick again we let for my sanity, for efficiency, the kids all bathe themselves, which is spectacular until they get in the tub at like 8.20 for a 8.30 <laughs> bedtime. I mean, they find ways to space it out and just kind of make it a, a, a giant pile up. And, uh, and, and so it, on a good night, they're all in bed by 8.30. Usually it stretches out a bit more. And on weekends, uh, it's till nine, unless we're doing something special. And every once in a while, I could be the super great parent. I'm like, hey, guys tonight there's no bedtime like a saturday night like, and they get so excited and then they all crash by like 11 anyway they cannot stay up as late as they think they can oh, important clarifying question how many bathtubs do you have we have one bathtub. So we used to have a shower in our hallway awkwardly. And then we had, <laughs> we have a nice clawfoot tub. And then we just recently, the last few years finished out our attic and we have a shower up there in the master bedroom suite. So now the shower is gone. It's a pantry, the one that was in the hallway. So there's one bathtub and the kids take forever. They just lay there and like, it's a, like, it's a sauna. They just, just soak. And so every, if there's a pile up, we, we violate the sanctuary of our master suites. Like, all right, somebody has got to take a shower, get up here. And so we, That's we will right. run them through doing that. Oh, James Breakwell, thank you so much for this conversation and for going through so many different stories, parenting, wake up, business, writing, work, secret jobs, pigs, and <laughs> children. Um, where can we find you on the internet? Where can they sign up for your newsletter? And where can they find your book? 
Uh, you can find the the hub for where everything is is explodingunicorn.com. That you can, from there you can find my books, you can find my newsletter. I definitely recommend you sign up for that newsletter. It's two thousand words a week. It basically ends up being the equivalent of two free books a year. Uh, you can find me on Twitter where I'm best known at Exploding Unicorn. And that book again is How to Be a Man, whatever that means. Lessons in Modern Masculinity from a Questionable Source. I've been going everywhere to promote it. Well, not literally going everywhere. Nobody goes anywhere anymore. <laughs> but doing all these podcasts. I've done a million of these and I have to say, I have to, I don't know if this is a compliment or what, but this is the first time out of a million podcasts where somebody has brought me to the brink of tears. So uh, thank you for oh, that. That was not I'm a moment sorry. I expected. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> um, I have been known to do that, but I don't oh. try to do that. Okay. So. Well, you're very yeah. good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone, for joining us for this interview. It's such a delight to have James Breakwell come and tell us so much about his life and his work and what it's like to be a parent. If you want to find out more about James Breakwell, you can find him on Twitter at Exploding Unicorn. That's without the E, so it just starts with an X. X, Exploding Unicorn. And you can find him around the web at James Breakwell. If you want to buy his latest book, it is out now. I just left my own review of the book. I had such a delight reading it. So check out How to Be a Man, Whatever That Means. The music from today's episode, two songs, More Than a Sin by River Sam and We Don't Listen by Mind Me. Those are both from Epidemic Sound. If you like what you're listening to here on Startup Parent, head over to startupparent.com. We have all the show notes. We have mini books and we have a newsletter that I write every week, every Friday that I send out. If you want to get on our newsletter, go to startupparent.com slash newsletter. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our coaches. Thanks to everyone in the Wise Women's Council for being so awesome. I love working with you year over year. And thanks for listening to this episode. 